let me ask you today, how many of you are detail-oriented people? Wow, like the women in the room were like, me, me, me. You know, there's a few of you guys there and, and stuff. So you are the detail-oriented people. Who in this room goes crazy when there's detail-oriented people around? They just drive you crazy, right? Some of you, like, uh, that is me. I am a crazy... Detail-oriented people drive me crazy at times. We have some people on our leadership team at church, and they drive me crazy. I'll just be honest with you. I've never said I'm a details kind of guy. I've always said, like a cop-out, I'm a big picture kind of guy, not a details kind of guy. But what I've noticed or what I've discovered, the older I'm getting, the more I'm actually appreciating details. I actually like details. I just don't want to be the one actually doing the details. You know, I want someone else to do it. I don't want to have to do the work. Uh, and in a, an example of this was last Saturday night. Raquel and myself got an invite to attend the Harford County Library Gala. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge event in Harford County. Um, and there was tons of people there. There was about 800 people there. There was food everywhere. They had this big band uh, with like a 40-piece like brass band. It was like amazing. Um, and on the invitation, though, there was a line that says, black tie preferred, black tie preferred. I'd never been to a black tie uh, function before where black tie was preferred. The only other time I've been to something was actually this last spring where there was an invitation to a wedding where it says black tie optional. The only person who wore black tie was a groom. So I was glad that I didn't wear the black tie because I didn't want to get mistaken for the groom. But... This event was, it was actually preferred. And so for those of you who don't know what a black tie event is, it's basically think James Bond for a moment where the guy's wearing a black suit and either a bow tie or like a, a nice necktie. Uh, the women are wearing long gowns and uh, I mean, you get dressed to the nines. Well, as I've never been to a black tie event before, I decided to do what many of us do when we don't know what to do. And I Googled. So, so I Googled black tie event and what I needed to do. Well, I discovered why you can't just wear any black suit. You actually have to wear a tuxedo. And a tuxedo is a little different from a black suit. It has like the satin down the pants, down the side. It's got the, the satin on the, the, the lapels and, and, and it's cut just a little differently. The jacket's just got like one button um, on it. And so it's just a little different to, to uh, the others. And, uh, and so I realized I don't have a tuxedo, so I need to go and get a tuxedo. Well, I went to get it and I suddenly discovered that there's all these other details that you need to do as well. When it comes to your tie, you can wear a bow tie, has to be black, or you can wear a normal necktie. Well, I tried the bow tie on and no one's ever going to see me in a bow tie again because I did not look like James Bond. So I decided to go for the normal necktie. Well, I just normally tie my neckties if I ever wear one a traditional way. Well, I discovered that in a black tie event, you have to tie it with a Windsor knot. So I had to learn, because I've never tied one with a Windsor knot before, had to learn how to tie a Windsor knot. And then the shirt has to be a white shirt, but it can't be a button-down shirt, and you can't have buttons on the cuff. You have to have something called a French cuff. If you try to go to the mall and try to get a shirt with a French cuff, it's going to be very difficult. Used to, years ago, get them everywhere. Now they're hardly anywhere. And they're the ones with like the cuff links and stuff like that. The, the, the cut of the neck on it, on the 
the collar is it can't be too narrow together. It's got to be so far apart that, that it actually sits under the jacket. And so trying to find one of these shirts was a nightmare. I finally found one um, in, in the end. And then there is something called a vest that you wear or a cummerbund. Cummerbund, I tried one on, but it reminded me of a sumo wrestler. So I was like, no, I'm not going to try one of these. But the vest and the way you have to wear the vest is there were four buttons and you do the top three buttons, but the, the last button you keep undone. I'm serious. This is serious stuff. And then fine, and then there was their pocket square, and the pocket square is like the handkerchief in the pocket with a and a black tie. It has to be minimal, so it only shows a tiny little amount, not this big handkerchief that's coming out that you know you're gonna like do a magic trick with or something. And then the shoes, the shoes couldn't be too rounded or too pointed or had too much pattern on. They had to be just right. And I was thinking, wow, this is just a little too detailed, too formal for me. But hey, when else do I get to do this? So let's go full out. So we got to the event and my wife looked stunning and beautiful in her dress that she got a ridiculous bargain on. And she always seems to get bargains and I don't. It's because she says she prays for her bargains. But she praises, she actually prays for a parking spot as well. And you know what? We actually get it. If we ever go to Towson and it's a Saturday afternoon, Towson Town Center, she'll be praying for a parking spot. And I'll be like, babe, I'm like, God's not going to answer that prayer. She's like, mm, there's one right there, like right by the front door. It, it works. My mom says she used to pray, pray for bargains and now my wife does. So uh, maybe there's something in it. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so we get to this event, and there's, like I said, there's about 800 people there, probably 400 guys, and 75% of the guys are dressed in black tie. They look amazing. It looks great. I mean, it looks like we're going to like the Oscars or something. Uh, but there was 25% of the guys who decided they did not want to wear black tie, and they put on a business suit with just like a normal tie. Now, if you'd seen those guys anywhere else, you would have thought they would have been dressed up. If you'd been in Home Depot and seen them, you're like, well, he's dressed up to come to Home Depot. But at that event, there was something about the guys who were just wearing normal suits. They just stood out like a sore thumb. They didn't look anywhere near as good as everybody else. And, and, and I, it was very noticeable, those who decided not to do the black tie. And then because I'd gone through all these details to get my outfit ready, I started to look at some of the other guys and what they were wearing. I felt like a girl for a moment. Isn't that what you girls do? You're like, well, what, what's she wearing? And so I started looking at the other guys, and I suddenly realized, okay, that guy looked at the details. That guy, he didn't bother. He just threw a tuxedo and a tie on. And you could actually tell a huge difference between the guys who had the details and the guys that didn't. And as I stood there, it was fun. It was a fun evening. But as I stood there, it started to remind me about our faith. And I just wondered for a moment, is my faith a black tie kind of faith or is it just throw on a business suit kind of faith? And I ask you today, is your faith a black tie kind of faith or is it a throw on a dinner suit kind of faith? Or maybe you're in this place today and your faith is just a pajamas kind of faith or throw on some sweatpants and walk out the house without combing your hair or brushing your teeth kind of faith. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the things that we wear right now. Jesus didn't come to save men in suits. Jesus came for all of us. I'm talking about your heart. Is your heart a black tie kind of heart or is it a sweatpants kind of heart? Do you bother with the details of God or is your faith just to throw on whatever you want and hope that God shows up kind of faith? 
There was a guy in the Old Testament. His name was David. David became the second king of Israel. And so they named him King David. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible tells us. That his heart was in alignment with God's heart. And and David was a details kind of guy. You can tell he wrote a lot of the Psalms. You can see a lot of the Psalms. He talks about the details of the world and and, and the things that he sees. He's very detail-oriented. And David, being a man after God's own heart, was very aware or became very aware that there was a misalignment in the nation of Israel. There was even a misalignment in his own home. For David lived in the grandest of palaces. David had spared no expense for his house. His kingdom was one of the grandest there was, but yet God lived in a tent. See, they had something called the tabernacle, which was a tent. And that was the place that you met when the priests went and met with God. And God would meet with Matt. And David had this conviction in his heart. He's like, I am living in the grandest of palaces. But there's God and God's just in a tent. See, the reason that God was in a tent is because when the Israelites, they were nomads for about 40 years. And they walked around the wilderness following a guy called Moses with a big stick. And when they were there, they didn't have the resources that Israel had later on. They didn't have the bricks or the mortar that they could actually build a building for God to meet with God. And so they set up a tent. And at the time, it was the grandest tent of all because everyone lived in tents. And they set up this tent called the tabernacle where they would meet with God. Well, as Israel, they went into what they called the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. As they started to dwell and they started to, to build up towns and cities and, and, and buildings, they, 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 they were, their place where they, were, where they were living was getting grander and grander, but yet they never revised where God was living or where they put God. So in the end, they put God on a big hill in a tent. And David thought that this was not right. So, so David was convicted in his heart that we need to build something that, God, that is deserving of God. That I can't have a great palace when God has a tent. So David laid out this incredible vision to build a temple to God. A temple for God to live and dwell. But David kept hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And David never built the temple. So as David, his life is about to end and David is old and gray and he knows he's about to die soon. He calls his son Solomon into his quarters and he says to his son Solomon, who is to become the next king of Israel. He said, I feel God laid on my heart to build a temple. And he started to share the vision of the temple with Solomon. And as he started to share the vision of the temple with Solomon, he started to, the Bible says he opened the plans and he shared all the plans with Solomon for the temple. It was to be the grandest temple ever. And then David passed away and Solomon caught the vision. Solomon Caught the fire. He was like, we got to build this temple. He decided he's going to make it his number one priority as a king to build a temple to God. And so let's read what happened in 2 Chronicles, which is in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It said, Solomon decided to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord and also a royal palace for himself. He enlisted a force of 70,000 laborers 
Could you imagine being like the HR person for all those people? 70,000 laborers, 80,000 men to quarry stone in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen. I mean, that's a whole lot of foremen. Solomon also sent this message to King Hiram of Tyre. Send me cedar logs as you did for my father David when he was building his palace. I am about to build a temple to honor the name of my God, the Lord my God. I will build a place set apart to burn fragrant incense before him, to display a special sacrificial bread, and to sacrifice burnt offerings each morning and evening on the Sabbaths and new, new moon celebrations and at other appointed festivals of the Lord our God. He has commanded Israel to do these things. Then he says this, this must be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all other gods. But who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heavens can contain him. So who am I to consider building a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? Then he says this, Solomon said to the king of of Tyre, so send me a master craftsman who can work with gold, silver, bronze, and iron, as well as purple, uh, as, as well as with pur- uh, purple, scarlet, and blue cloth. He must be a skilled engraver who can work with the craftsmen of Judah and Jerusalem who were selected by my father David. Then he continues. Solomon decided we're going to spare no expense. We're going to give our best. I'm going to hire the best person I can to make sure that even the little details of the temple are taken care and they are honoring to God. See, Solomon had the same mentality as his father. Why should I shortchange God? Why should I have a better palace than God? Why should my house be better than God's house? The plans for the temple are so meticulous, they are scary. You can actually read them in the Bible, and they got all the measurements and all the different things that they did. It was incredible what they were doing. But they believed that it was in the details that God was honored. So that's why I ask you, is your faith a black tie kind of faith? Or is it just throwing a pair of sweatpants kind of faith? See, the news of the temple spread throughout all the nations. It became one of the grandest buildings in the world. In fact, the Temple of Solomon became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The details of the temple, they were legendary. But the most important or the most impressive thing about Solomon's temple were not the bricks, were not the mortar, was not the incredible timber and cedars that they used. It was not the gold or the silver or the iron. The most impressive thing about the Temple of Solomon was what happened the day they invited God to come and live in the temple. And we find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 2. So the temple is finished. And it says, Solomon then summoned to to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of Israel. They were to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early fall. 
When all the elders of Israel arrived, the Levites picked up the ark. The priests and the Levites brought up the ark along with the special tent. Don't forget the special tent. And all the sacred items that had been in it. There before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. Then let's fast forward to verse 11. It says, Then the priests left the holy place. All of the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. And the, the Levites, who were the musicians, Asaph, Heman, and Jadutham, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. They were joined by 120 priests who were playing trumpets. The trumpets and the singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. Then they all raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Then it says this. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the, pre- uh, the, the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. For the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. They had spent years building this temple, not, not skipping across the details, being so detail-oriented. It finished, but the day they finished, they invited to, for God to come into the temple, and God came. They all experienced the presence of God. Up until that point, the Bible tells us only very few men had experienced the presence of God. A few prophets here and there, a few good men had experienced the presence of God. But the Bible says the whole of Israel assembled together and they saw the presence of God. And it makes me wonder, I wonder if they had just thrown up a quick steel building where it would have taken three to six months to build. And they'd skipped on the details. I wonder if God would have shown up. Maybe God would have shown up. But I think God was so impressed with just how much they wanted to honor them, how much they wanted to give him their best, that God decided that day that he would be delighted to honor them with their presence. I bet they never forgot the day that they saw the presence of God. I bet they told their children and their grandchildren about it. And I have a feeling that because of the details, they were so meticulous in honoring God that God showed up. And I just wonder, some of us, I wonder if we're not experiencing the presence of God in our lives because we're not honoring God with the details. I wonder if we're treating God like a tent instead of a temple. I I wonder in our lives, are we black tie Christians or sweat pack kind of Christians. And I ask you today, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a tent kind of Christian? Throw up a quick tent, maybe once a week, hope God will show up. Or are you a temple kind of Christian? Where you will honor God with the details and you will be meticulous in your life to make sure that your life is an honoring life unto God. You may say to me, well, Alex, God isn't about the building. The church isn't about the building. That we can build a big, grandest building, but it doesn't mean God's going to show up in that. And you are absolutely right. 
Christianity is not about the building, but it is about the temple. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, Paul here, he's talking about sexual immorality. That's what he's talking about at this moment. But the principle is still there. Your body, your life is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, the temple was built so that God can meet with man. There was a significant place that they would go to and God would meet with man. But then Jesus came and Jesus, he made a sacrifice that, not, that, that, that dispelled all of the sacrifices, that we never have to make a sacrifice again. We have no need for a physical temple anymore because Jesus came. Jesus gave his life as a forgiving offering offerings for you. And so what that means now, the Bible says that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit of God living within you, which means that now you are the temple of God. You don't have to go somewhere to experience God. You can experience Him right in your life because your life is the temple. So your life right now, are you a tent kind of Christian? Or is your life a life where you are building the temple of God, building the temple of God. A couple of weeks ago, one Sunday after church, often we'll head out church, go home, and maybe I'll pick up something, some food on the way home. And there's a place that we often frequent, and uh, it's it's got a dining place, but it's also got a drive-through as well. And uh, they do lots of chicken, and we love the chicken from there. And uh, I won't mention the name of the place, but it's pretty near Home Depot. And so we, we go there, and we've gone there a lot throughout the years and, and stuff, but we've never actually eaten in the restaurant. We've just gone through the drive-thru, and we've always loved their chicken. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we decided to actually go into the restaurant, and what a mistake that was. As we got in there, it was like the dirtiest, grimiest, stickiest, smelliest restaurant I had ever been in. And suddenly I started thinking, if it's like this here, what's it like in the kitchen? And they've been serving food for me for years through that drive through window. And I had no idea how nasty it was inside. So how nasty it was. We went through almost a packet of Pampers wipes, just wiping down the high chair so Evan could sit in there. It was nasty. I did not finish my meal. And there's no way I'm ever going to meet there or eat there again. And if that's all I knew, then maybe that probably wouldn't be the case. But that isn't all I know. I know that there's great places to eat. Before Evan came along, my wife and myself, we were foodies. We had money to actually go out and eat. And we went out and eat. Now we're kind of like mac and cheese kind of people. I mean, that's it. But we went out and we would go to nice restaurants. And then my wife hit a very significant birthday. I won't tell you what birthday that was. But all I know is that she's on the downhill slope now, not the uphill slope. But she hit this significant birthday. And and I was going to throw a surprise party. But I knew she wouldn't have liked it that much. And so I I saved up the money, the money we'd use for a party. And I was like, we're going to go to the best restaurant in Baltimore. And so I surprised her with a trip to a restaurant called the Charleston Restaurant. It is down there in Harbour East. It is the most amazing restaurant, and it is so 
expensive. It's unbelievable. It will make you like get anxious just thinking about it. So if anyone ever invites you and wants to pay for a meal, don't say no. Always go to the Charleston if they're going to pay for it. But so... We went there and the cost was high, but I didn't care because we were honoring my wife because she'd hit this huge milestone and she deserved it. And so as we walk in, I'd heard the food was good and the food was good. The food was great, but the service was amazing. I've never experienced service like that in a restaurant in my entire life. It was like the pinnacle of my dining experience. I've never experienced a restaurant like it. I would go back every single day of my life if I could afford to. Uh, and, 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 and the thing is, we were there, and as we were eating, we knew this was an incredible moment because you never get service or food like that anywhere else. On the way home, that's all we could talk about. In the weeks following, I started telling everybody, have you been to the Charleston? Have you tried the Charleston? The Charleston is an amazing restaurant. You've got to go. If you get a chance to go, then go. It's expensive, but go. Because it's the most amazing place ever. There's no way I'm going to go back to that greasy fast food joint again. See, fast food joints, their goal is just to get you in and out as quick as possible, just to serve you some food so that maybe you'll come back. So it's cheap enough that, that you won't worry about it. But the Charleston... They don't care if every person comes through their door. They want to make sure the person who comes through their door, that they have the most incredible dining experience, that they will never forget it for their life. And I will never forget that life, that for my life. And I just wonder in your life right now, are you a fast food kind of Christian? Or are you a Charleston kind of Christian? Are you a fast food kind of Christian? Or are you a Charleston kind of Christian? When people meet you, when you're at work, when, when people, you may meet someone for the first time, do, 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 do they go away and they want to tell everybody about you? They want to tell all their friends and the neighbors about you. I met this most incredible person. I don't know what it is about them, but there is something incredible. And that's because you are building the temple of God within you. And they are attracted to you. When people come in into our church, are they attracted to us? Because they are meeting people where they're having the most incredible experience. Or when they meet you, are they experiencing just some greasy, sticky, nasty fast food restaurant that they just don't want anything to do that makes them vomit a little in their mouth? Are you a Charleston Christian or a fast food kind of Christian? That night I went to the Charleston. I had no problem in paying that incredibly high price. Probably can't afford to do it until I'm about 70 again. But it was a sacrifice worth making. I ask you in your life, when it comes to the things like sacrifice and prayer and fasting and commitment and church attendance and living upstanding lives, do you grumble about it? Do you think it is a chore? Do you think it is, oh man, I have to do this? Because it shouldn't be because this life isn't about us. It's all about him. And it's all about bringing honor to him. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 to 33 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I just don't do what's best for me. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. See, what Paul is saying here, he says, everything I do, I do for the glory of God. I love what he says, 
I do not give offense, so I try not to give offense to Jews and Gentiles or the church of God. What he's saying is the way I approach others, I, I don't want them to be turned off by me. What, what I'm doing for the community of faith or, or what I'm doing for the church, is it actually offensive? Is it hurting the church or is it helping the church? Am I helping others find Christ or am I like a, an insect repellent and, and I'm repelling people from Christ? I'm going to ask you a really hard question right now and I don't want you to answer it out loud. Just think about it. This week, how have you honored God with your time? This week, has your life helped bring people closer to God or has it pushed people away from God? See, Paul knew first and foremost that his own desires were not the major deal here. That his decisions that he had to make would would be about how others would find Christ. It would be about honoring God and bringing others to Christ. So we're so excited that our, our kids building finally got finished. I am so glad, and this is why I'm glad, because not only we have an awesome kids building, but I get my wife back. For like two months, I feel like I've been a single dad. You know, it's been kind of crazy. Even like Friday, just finishing up some of the details. I mean, lots of people have been working in there, but she's been going like crazy. Friday night, she, she got home, like actually Saturday morning, like three in the morning, like finishing there. I was like, babe, like you're going to kill yourself. I'm like, you're not 21 anymore. But, uh, but, but she's been going because she's a detail person. She loves the details. She's a graphic designer, and she'll show me a design. I'm like, that's great, babe, best I've ever seen. And then 10 hours later, she'll come back. No, I didn't like it. I did something different. And she's so detail-oriented. She'll ask me about fonts. I'm like, what's wrong with Times New Roman or whatever? You know, what's wrong with Ariel? And, and, and she's so detail-oriented. And I've seen it with this new kids building. See, we didn't do this new kids building just to have a great kids area. We didn't do it so that we could do, be another like playroom or creative cow or uh, any of the other places that kids go to. We did it because firstly, we wanted to honor God with the details. We wanted to give our best to God. But also we wanted to create a place that our kids could find a pathway to experiencing Christ. And do all we can so that others can come in and experience Jesus Christ. We wanted to make it a great place that people would talk about. See, if we treated our church building, say, like a sticky, nasty fast food joint, what would that say to our community? It would say that we're cheap, that we're fast, that we want to get as many people in through the doors, in and out as much as we can. Listen, generation, we are too precious to God to be fast food. We are too talented. We are too favored by God. We have come too far to be a nasty, sticky fast food joint. See, we may never become a mega church. I don't know. But all I know is this. God has caused us to be a Charleston. Here at Generation Church, God has called us to be a Charleston that when people come in, they experience fine dining. That they are dining on the most incredible spiritual food that you could imagine. That is the Word of God. And that when they come in, that they will go and tell their friends and their neighbors and everybody about it. You've got to experience what is going on at Generation Church. It's the most amazing experience you'll ever find. We don't want to be a Chili's, even though their chips and salsa is amazing. We want to be the Charleston. 
Because that's what God has called us to, to give our best onto God. Paul told us to be excellent in all that we do. He said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 6. He says, so I've urged Titus to encourage your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. They were having like some special offering. Since you excel in so many ways, he said, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us. I want you to also excel in this gracious act of giving. Then Paul said this to the Corinthians. I'm not commanding you to do this. So having a spirit of excellence, giving your best unto God, isn't a command that God is commanding you to do. So it's not like you have to go, it's like, oh man, it's like one of the Ten Commandments. I shall not murder, I shall not kill, I shall not steal another man's wife. I shall not, not be excellent. But he said this, but I am testing how your genuine, how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. When I read that this week, I went, Pow. and this is why. I love you guys with a passion. I love this church with a passion. Some of you have given so much for this church. But let's be real this morning. When we compare ourselves with other churches, there are some churches out there, they are killing it. They are reaching their community like we could only dream of reaching our community. That they are experiencing God like we desire to experience God. And when we compare ourselves with some of the others out there, they are doing it better than us. That They are more committed to us. They're giving more time. They are praying more. They're giving more to God than what we are. And so as Paul is saying to this, compare yourself with other churches now. Are we giving our best unto God? This last Thursday, I had a... Uh, a coffee appointment with a man called Azzy, A-Z-I. It was a business appointment. And we sat in Starbucks in, in Towson. As we sat there, he started asking me just about my life and just some of the things that are going on and, you know, my, a bit about my story. So I started ch- sharing about Generation Church, you know, and, and all the wonderful people we have and just what God has done and stuff. And he had this smile on his face. I was like, why are you smiling? And he goes, well, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I was like, well, I kind of figures because he had the thing on his, on his, on his head. And, and he said, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And about 10 years ago, some families and myself, we decided to start a new synagogue. I'm like, why? You guys plant synagogues? I didn't even know that happened. I thought they were all like 500 years old. But they started this new synagogue and he started telling me about it. And he started just telling me about just uh, some of the things. They've been in existence 10 years. Two years ago, they just got into a new building. And uh, just uh, they, they have about 200 families uh, who come and, uh, and stuff. And, and, and it was just neat hearing about it. And I says, hey, well, if you're not the Orthodox Jew, I've got a question for you. I said, last year, one of the kids in our, our church was in Sinai Hospital um, in, in Baltimore. And I went to visit them on a Saturday. And as I walked in, uh, I went to the elevator. And on the elevator, there was a sign, do not push any buttons. Uh, it's the Sabbath. This elevator will stop at every single uh, floor. And I was reading that, and I had to read it again. And I'm thinking, what? They think pushing a button is work because Jewish people believe that you shall not work on the Sabbath. 
And so I says, what, so pushing a button is work? I mean, I didn't mean it in a bad way. I was just, I was intrigued. He says, actually, yeah. He says, it's not to do with work. He says, it's about what happened at the temple. And in the temple, and in the temple, they would make sacrifices. And uh, they would have to create fire to make those sacrifices. And so we would, the temple would, what we do in the temple would not be, would not happen on, on a Sabbath. He says, so electricity is like creating a fire. I was like, well, electricity can create a fire. I suppose it is fire. So I said, so you guys never use any electricity on the Sabbath? And he was like, no, we live like the Amish. I was like, so you don't switch any lights on? Or what? how does that work? You need the bathroom in the middle of the night? He says, we have timers on our lights. I'm like, you guys are smart people. And I asked him, I was like, so what about your kids? I mean, I mean, do they feel like they miss out because they can't do half the stuff? They don't drive cars or anything? And they were like, no, my kids love it. They, they love it. They love the fact that they get mom and dad to themselves all day. I'm like, there's something in that. So I started saying, so what, what are your services like? I mean, you know, how, how often do you have them? And he says, we have service every day. I was like, what? You have service every day? He says, yeah, we have service every day. Actually, we have service three times a day. I was like, hold on. You have service three times a day. Like I thought growing up, we went to Bible study on, on Wednesdays, prayer on, on Mondays, youth on Fridays, youth small group Thursdays, church on Sundays. I mean, we were churched out and I thought that was a lot. He said, no, he says, we have a service every morning, every afternoon, every evening. Some of them last for 45 minutes, some of them 15 minutes. I was like, okay, so who's going to this? Like, just like some old ladies or some old guys or some retired people or, or you know, just somebody who's like working shift work. He was like, no, we have a lot of people come. He says, and then those who work, uh, if they're in a big office building, there's other Orthodox Jews, they'll get into a conference room and they'll, they'll pray with each other. And I was just like, he started telling me about, I was like, so you go every day? And he was like, yeah, I go every day. And something just sunk in my heart. This guy was the nicest guy. I mean, really was. And I says, it's amazing. You can get people to go to the synagogue every day, but we can't even get people to come to church twice a month. And for the first time in my life, and I'm not talking about a generation, I'm talking about Christianity in the United States. For the first time in my life, I felt ashamed of being a Christian. I didn't feel ashamed of being a Christ follower. But I felt ashamed of associating myself with Christianity or American Christianity because how many of us would be willing to come here every single day? See, we have Jesus. We have the hope of the world. We have what the Jews are longing for. We have what these Orthodox Jews, they are longing for a Savior, a Messiah, a pathway to heaven, a new life. They are longing for for the Spirit of God to experience the presence of God. And we have it. But yet their commitment is so much more than us. And I left thinking, man, maybe I want to be an Orthodox Jew. If they had Jesus, because they don't have Jesus. I says, he said, well, when people get on a daily pattern, daily habits, it's a lot easier to keep a daily habit than a weekly habit. I was like, you're right there. And I looked at him and they really deal with the details of their faith. And I ask you today, are you a black tie kind of Christian or are you a sweatpants kind of Christian? Are you a temple Christian or a tent Christian? 
Are you a fast food Christian or are you a Charleston Christian? Are you a let's do whatever's best for me kind of Christian or let's do what's best so that others can experience Christ kind of Christian? See, when Jesus came into this world, Jesus came full of details. Jesus was a detail-oriented guy. He didn't do a half-hearted job, but he left completing a task. God had these grand plans, and Jesus completed the plans. He completed the task. And he brought honor to God, and he gave you an opportunity so that you can find forgiveness of sins. Jesus was a black tie kind of guy. Yeah, he may have just wore a robe, a carpenter's robe, but his heart was a black tie kind of heart. He showed what the grandest temple should look like when he showed his own life. The food he served were the more, was the most incredible food you could ever imagine in your life. He came not thinking about himself, but he came thinking about you. So today, as we close, or before we close, we are going to embrace the divine details of Jesus by coming around what we call communion. We're going to embrace the divine details of the cross of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just come and say, hey, everybody who follows me is forgiven or not. No, Jesus went to, to, to the most extremes to make sure that you have a pathway to God. And so this morning, on your seats, you have these little cups. There's some juice, and then above them, there's a little wafer. And... The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke the bread. And he said, and he gave thanks. And then he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. The Bible tells us that it's by his wounds that we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. His broken body, through his broken body, we find hope through his broken body and his scars. And then Paul says, and then after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the, the new covenant. Then he says, drink this in remembrance of me. Then he says, do this as often as you meet together to remember the Lord's death until Jesus comes back again. Then Paul says this, he says, but before you eat and drink, he said, Examine your own heart. Examine your own heart. And before we take of the bread and the wine today, I want us to examine our hearts. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to examine your heart today. And I want you to be very real with yourself. Am I a black tie kind of guy or girl? Or am I a sweatpants kind of Christian? Have I treated God like the tent? Or have I built up my heart to become the temple of the Holy Spirit? What you are serving others through your life, is it just fast food stuff? Or, or are you like the Charleston 
That when people experience you, they are experiencing the most amazing experience because you have the Spirit of God within you. So as we examine our hearts today, I'm going to pray a quick prayer and then we will partake in communion. And as I pray this prayer today, if you know that you've not been given your best to God and you know you've been shortchanging God a little, today is a day you can come to God and say to God, I'm sorry. And make a pledge to say, God, I'm going to give you my best.